Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Thanks, John and team, for leading us in that beautiful time of worship. Uh, Good to be here with you here this morning. My name is Derek. I'm one of the teachers here. Uh, My family and I had the uh, great chance to be a part of the church family camp last weekend. It was very fun. I hadn't been to a church camp in a while. As a family, uh, I think I slept a total of five hours. There was no AC. I got sunburned and bit by mosquitoes. But it was a great time. No, it was awesome. Um, I was was seeing if I could wake us up a little bit there. (laughs) Had a great time of fellowship with our gospel community. Really enjoyed connecting with them and around the campfire and getting to know some other people, especially others from uh, a city church, church that merged with us a little while ago. So it was really good. And then even more so on Father's Day, the last day, I had the great honor of baptizing our youngest daughter, Brooke. And that was really huge. Both my wife and I got to participate in that. So very thankful for that. Um, So... A couple weeks ago, we looked at, from John chapter 8, how we know we can trust Jesus' authority. Uh, there's a few verses here in John 8 that we have skipped over. We're going to get to those later on this summer. Uh, somebody else will preach those verses. But um, today, we're going to look at Jesus' greatness over another person of greatness that's honored by the Jews. Um, Jesus finds himself in the midst of an argument that becomes increasingly heated here in this chapter. In fact, it's one of the most heated in all of John's gospel. And it's because of what he claims about himself over that of a towering biblical figure as that of Abraham. So there's this debate of Jesus's greatness over Abraham's greatness. And in fact, as we'll see, Jesus takes it even further and goes deeper. So first though, if we're going to understand Jesus's greatness here in this passage, we need to be honest about our hearts, our spiritual heart. So our spiritual heart is uh, this immaterial, this invisible part of us that really governs everyday life for us. Virtually everything about your everyday life experience, your behaviors, your habits, your emotions, your thoughts, your dreams, your desires, your angsts, your attitudes, begins and flows out of your heart, your spiritual heart. So the heart is an idea, it's a reality that God has put in each one of us as created and in his image that is seen all throughout the story of the Bible and that is a part of our everyday life. Proverbs 4:23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So it's this 24-7 nonstop engine of desires and emotion and thought that governs how you live. You cannot not have desires and emotions. I'm just giving you a little primer on what your heart is. You cannot stop thinking. You cannot stop feeling. Even now, you came here today with thoughts and feelings, whether positive, negative, whatever those are, whatever's going on in your life, we have thoughts and feelings that comes out of our heart. So just like your physical heart that is pumping and pulsating with blood all day, all night, 24-7, nonstop, no neutral gear, it's always in go mode, your heart takes those desires It's priming and pumping desires and attaches them, it searches for and attaches them to something that is great. Something that has worth, that has value, that has significance. It's just natural. You can't stop your heart from doing that. Your spiritual heart, it will always do that. Your spiritual heart is a never-ending search 
for what is greater. Who or what in your heart has greatness? I think that would, that it, 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 uh, if I'm going to be honest, I, if I could just wake up every day and ask myself, what's going on in my heart? What am I searching for? What am I desiring for? That could probably help me to live my life a little bit better in Christ, right? Who or what has your heart attached its desires for greatness? Now, when I talk about greatness, I'm not talking about greatness as in you think the pizza at Flying Pie is better than Idaho Pizza Company. By the way, it's Flying Pie. I'm not talking about greatness as in your taste in music. What bands or genre of music you think is greater than everything else? Although I know for some of us, we tend to have strong loyalties or allegiances to our, our music and our bands for some interesting reason. Um, I knew this guy in college that he believed that U2 was the greatest band ever. Just going to pause there, see if there's any U2 fans. Okay. Um, <laughs> so he believed that U2 was the greatest band ever, the, the Irish rock band U2, and he was thoroughly convinced that Bono will be leading worship in heaven. I just, I don't have a category for that. I don't know what to do with that. Uh, but that's what he believed. I am not talking about greatness as in your favorite NFL uh, football team, although I know for some of us we have strong allegiances towards that. I come from Seattle, so go Seahawks, right? Maybe some of us that's a real problem. I am talking about greatness as in a deep loyalty or allegiance or conviction, a vigorous emotional commitment that produces some kind of visceral response, some kind of strong emotion that arises out of that conviction. I'm talking about who or what in your heart has greatness in such a way that if that person or thing was critiqued or ridiculed or downplayed or dismissed would cause even an ounce of anger or emotion to well up inside of you. Okay? I'm talking about a core spiritual sense of greatness that our heart is searching for and looking for. Now, here's the problem. It's completely natural to have these desires. That's the way God built us. It's completely natural to have these desires towards someone or something that has greatness. The problem is, is that yet often that person or thing does not ultimately have the greatness, the value, the worth, or significance we need them to have or wish they had. The uh, Talking about music here, the band Fleetwood Mac from the 70s, 80s, they have that hit song, Go Your Own Way. Uh, the first two lines in that song say, loving you isn't the right thing to do. Yet, how can I ever change things that I feel? Super honest question, right? The whole theme of that song is, I know you are not the right person to love because you're not really committed to me. All you care about is shacking up. Yet, in my heart, I can't change how I feel about you. How do I do that? How do you change how you feel in your heart about something or someone that's great who ultimately isn't great, who maybe you know isn't great, and yet you have a core and strong desire and a loyalty to them that, you, that needs to be changed. How do you do that? See, we know instinctively, intuitively, because we have a conscience that when something is wrong, yet we still feel a passion for it. We attach greatness to it. Or we know instinctively that something is good and therefore worthy of our desire to make it great, yet we have built an inordinate desire or an over-desire or what the Bible calls lust 
for that good thing such that it becomes greater than the ultimate good in this world, which is God. How do we, like Fleetwood Mac, change what we feel and desire about who is great, who has our loyalty? How do we look to Jesus as greater than, and you fill in the blank. We're going to look at three ways this morning. We're going to look at who Jesus is, we're going to look at what he does, and then we'll look at what he teaches. So, three ways. How do we look to Jesus as greater than, fill in the blank, Three ways, look at who he is, look at what he does, and look at what he teaches. First, look at who he is. Jesus is the one true God. Verses 52 and 53 here. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And then on down towards the end of the passage, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, as we look at great here, uh, the word for great in the Greek is basically the word that uh, is pronounced mega. Um it's a great word. I love that word. I love attaching the word mega as an adjective to things that I think are great. Uh, when, we were, when we were looking for homes here in Idaho, moving from Seattle, I, well, I was always attracted to houses that had porches, front porches. And some houses had mega porches, right? Just wrap around porch, you know. Anyway, mega is a big, it's a big deal for me. I'm sorry, I just went off on a little tangent. <laughs> but I love the word mega. It, it just means greatness, the greatness that we attach to people or things. And the Jews are basically saying, are you more mega than Abraham? Why is Abraham so mega to the Jews? Why is he so great? Why is he such a big deal? We're just going to, I want to cover this real briefly because it's important. Abraham is basically the founding father of the Jews. He's the, he is the, the founding father of Israel as a community of faith as a nation. If you go back through the Old Testament, we don't have time to do that, but his life story is one of the most intriguing and the most inspiring in Genesis. God called him out of Chaldea, which is a nation filled with idolatry, to leave his father's household. And he made a covenant with Abraham, which is one of the core foundations of the covenant that even the New Testament authors look back to as a precursor to Jesus and as a, as a foundation even for the new covenant in Christ. God made that with Abraham. So Abraham has one of the most enduring narratives in the Old Testament. If you grew up be, being a part of a church and you were a kid and you went to some kind of a program, a kid's program or Sunday school, uh, chances are you heard about Abraham in the Sunday school curriculum. In fact, if you didn't, I would question the integrity of that Sunday school curriculum. You just can't get away from Abraham. He's huge. He's mega. So Abraham is core to the identity of the Jews as a religious community. They look to Abraham as their mega, as their greatness, as having authority. And Jesus says, actually, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes it even further when he says, I am. He's saying, I am God. Now, those words, we have to, I, I, I have to help us understand what those words mean to us today. Because back then, to the Jews, to a first century Jew, it means something uh, completely different than how we often would see it today. If you go up to someone on the street, just haphazardly, right? 
and you say, uh, hey, look, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> they won't understand what you're saying. They won't recognize it. They'll give you the weirdest look. And they might, if they're nice, they might say, I'm sorry, are you quoting a movie? <laughs> um, no, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Abraham who? Abraham Lincoln? You existed before Abraham Lincoln, right? Awkward silence, and then they might walk away. But if you go up to a first century Jew and you say, before Abraham was, I am, you better be prepared to physically defend yourself because I am are trigger words for them. You don't just go around saying, I am. That's because to them, I am is God's personal name. It's the word and the name that he gave Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, before he's, right before he sends Moses and commissions him to go and help lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. So for the Jews, the words I am, those are fighting words because they are, they are God's personal name. They are so holy to them, the Jews would never even speak those words. They never speak the word God's personal name, Yahweh, which means I am. So Jesus can go up to him and says, he says, I'm greater than Abraham. And the Jews might give him a funny look and be like, okay, whatever, that dude's crazy. But he says before Abraham was, I am. And they're like, all right, let's take this outside. And I'm looking for the biggest rock I can find on the way out. You don't mess around with God's name, his personal name. And Jesus is claiming, guess what, I'm God. I am. I am Yahweh. To us in 21st century America, 20 centuries removed, 2,000 years, I am, you could say to someone, Jesus is God. You could try to convince them why they should believe in Jesus, and you say, Jesus is God, and they say, so? I don't even, I don't believe in God. I don't, I don't believe God even exists. But if you say, Jesus has the authority and the right to define who you are, to tell you how you should live your life and critique you for how you have or haven't been living your life, that's when a fight might ensue. Because in our culture, nobody wants to be told how to live. Nobody wants to be told who they are. Nobody wants someone else having the right to speak over their life. It is still a question of authority, and it's a question of greatness. For a first century Jew, I am meant that Jesus is, or that God is almighty, that Jesus is holy. He's the holy Yahweh. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. The authority there is just assumed. In 21st century secularized, secularized America, who may not care about God, but does care a lot about how they get to live their life, it means he has the authority and right to speak over your life define your identity and tell you how you should live. Now, his greatness, Jesus' greatness, and what we're talking about here is not an authoritarian greatness. It is a grace-filled, patient, faithfully loving greatness. The same God who proclaimed his personal name to Moses is also the same God who proclaimed his character to Moses later on in the book of Exodus when he proclaimed to Moses, I am Yahweh, the compassionate, gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet I will not leave the guilty unpunished. So we have Jesus claiming to be I am, claiming to be God, not out of an authoritarian dictatorship, but out of grace. 
out of love. This is not Jesus' greatness coming in lightning bolts and saying, you will bow down to me and worship me or else. This is Jesus' greatness coming to you humbly as a shepherd with grace and truth, full of grace and truth, coming to save you, heal you, and change you. So submitting to him in his greatness means submitting to his instruction and his counsel and his shepherd and his commands in order to heal every aspect of your life. My friends, do you know this man who claimed to be God is in fact God? Who has all the authority and right to speak over your life with love, with grace and truth? Who is committed to your personal holiness? Wants to change and transform you for your good? Do you know him? Do you know this man who loves you? Who calls you to trust him and submit to his wise and loving authority. So how do we look to Jesus as greater than all else? We look to who he is. He is the I am. He is God. Second, we look to what he does. Jesus gives you eternal life now. Notice what he says here in verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, when Jesus says that, that he will never see death, Jesus is not saying that you will never die physically. That's inevitable because of our sin. He's saying you will never die eternally or spiritually or holistically. Okay, what does he mean by that? Well, in John and in the New Testament, Jesus talks about, now that I have come, the kingdom is now here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The works that I do are the work of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the reality of God's restoring all things under his righteous and loving rule, which means everything will be perfect, everything will be whole, everything will be at peace, everything will be full of grace and truth. That's the kingdom, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring, which is not fully complete until the future, has come, and it's like it's reached out of the future and come and broken into history in the person of Jesus. So the reality of this restoration that will happen when God recreates the heavens and the earth, new heavens and new earth, that John also talks about in Revelation, uh, has reached back out of the future and began that work in history even now. And that's not just an external reality that happens around you. That reality happens first in you. It comes and it permeates and it pervades and it comes inside you to change you from the inside out. That's why in the gospel you're given a new heart to believe and obey, a new heart and a new spirit. That's why Paul can say that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Anytime you see the word new in the New Testament, it's talking about this future kingdom reality that will one day be complete and perfect that is, has started now in and through Jesus. That is happening inside you when you believe and the Holy Spirit is doing in you. So I talked about maybe two weeks ago a little bit about resurrection. That one day that just like Jesus says, you will never see death. Your body, your dead, broken, decayed body will be resurrected 
to new, perfect, eternal life. You'll have a body that will never die. Well, that's not just a future thing for your body. Right now, even now, your spirit and your soul, the inner part of you is being resurrected, being renewed daily. Okay? The resurrection begins now. The future begins now. The kingdom begins now. Jesus says in John 17, when he had spoken these words, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And listen to this. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's not saying, well, you're going to know God in the future. He's saying you're going to know him now. He's saying eternal life begins now, is experienced now. My friends, see, Christianity is not just this great teaching or advice or instruction that is given to you so that you may follow it and just wait around till heaven happens. No, Christianity is a revelation, and it's a powerful experience by God through, by his spirit happening in you now through Jesus so that you may become new. So the work of eternity, the work of the kingdom, the work of resurrection is happening in you now. Do you see that? That's what Jesus does. He gives you eternal life now. Christianity proclaims an announcement of good news that sin, your sin, my sin, our brokenness, the death that is awaiting us, Satan having been, and Satan have been defeated and will one day be completely wiped from the picture. Through faith in this good news, this announcement of victory, Christianity is offering you an opportunity to experience eternal life starting now. A changed life, a transformed life, a resurrected life. So the beauty and the power of resurrection is a dynamic reality of the kingdom that happens here now. That's what Jesus does. He gives that to you. He makes that happen inside you. Thirdly and lastly, look at what Jesus teaches Jesus teaches relationship by faith, not religion. Verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Further down, he says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a father and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. How is Jesus teaching relationship by faith and not religion here? Well, first he shows us how the the ways that he shows us relationship by faith is different than and in conflict with religion. And there's three ways he does that. First, notice what he says. He says that if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. So Abraham was a man. In his story, he lived by faith not by sight. He lived by faith, and out of that faith and that trust, he had obedience out of a humble heart. 
So in Genesis 26, I want to mention this real briefly because it's really important. In Genesis chapter 26, Abraham's dead, but his son Isaac uh, is, has, is renewing the covenant with Yahweh. God is renewing the covenant with his son Isaac. And God says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Those are pretty much the exact same words that God told Abraham, his dad. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So that's a really important phrase right there. Because later on, after Israel leaves Egypt, God gives them all those laws, right, as a part of the covenant. And he says throughout, this is a catchphrase, keep my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Did you notice what's happening here? Abraham, it is being said of Abraham that he fulfilled the law, that he kept God's commandments 400 years before a law was even given in Genesis. How did he do that? He did it by faith. He did it by faith resulting in obedience. There's no record of Abraham receiving all 613 of those laws. It's only in Exodus. And yet, God says that Abraham did that. He did it by faith. Jesus speaks often of faith in John. In fact, the word believe or believes or believing or believed happens over almost 100 times throughout the book. You go to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John 20, at the end of the book, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John chapter 6, the Jews say to him, what must we do, what must we do to be doing the works of God? We thought we were doing the works of God. We were following the law. And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who was sent, i.e. like Abraham. So the work of God, my friends, the work of God is to believe, is to first have faith, is to first trust in the good news, is to first trust that who God is and what he says he's doing for you and in you and among you. That's the work of God, according to Jesus. Now, thirdly here, how does Jesus teach about relationship by faith as opposed to religion. We saw a couple weeks ago that previously here in uh, John, throughout John, we saw how light is in conflict with and contrast to darkness. And to pursue the light or to be in the light is not to be a good person, is not to try hard to be really moral and religious. It is to humbly admit that you aren't a good person that you don't know the truth and that you need God to show you the truth, that you need God to teach you the truth, that you need God to reveal you the truth. You need God to open your eyes to see the light. So that's being in the light. Darkness is being prideful and arrogant, thinking I don't need the truth. I already have my own truth. Or I already know how to live my life. Or I don't need another authority over me. That's darkness. Remember, darkness is not just is not so much not wanting the truth, it's believing you don't need the truth, which is pride. So you have light, which is admitting you need the truth and you need God to change you, versus darkness, 
believing you don't need the truth, and therefore you don't need to be changed. If you notice, throughout the story of John, throughout the story of Jesus, Jesus is in constant conflict with the Jews. Jesus is teaching belief, which is humbly accepting the truth, and the Jews are talking about religion. Like, we don't need the truth. We don't need you. There's a constant conflict there. So do you see what's happening? If light is opposed to darkness and Jesus is opposed to the Jews, then the darkness is religion. Light is, is faith, is humbly accepting that you need to be changed. And the darkness is religion, believing I don't, I already got, I, I'm good, I'm good to go. I'm pursuing this on my own. You have to understand a little bit about religion is, friends. Religion is a system of transactions between you and some other deity, between you and the one true God, between you and some, whatever, if you want to call it a higher power, whatever you think it is or whatever people think it is, it's between you, it's a transactional contract, it's a contractual relationship between you and God. If you strip away all of the doctrines and all of the traditions and everything from any religion, it boils down to that. It doesn't matter what the religion is. I'm not trying to say every religion is on an equal plane, but, I, but what I am trying to do is help you to see that every religion in the world, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, New Age spirituality, it's all about trying to reach the standard of these transactions through your work and through your practices and what you do to try to climb the ladder to get there. And you try to do that on your own. So Socrates, the, the Greek philosopher, even said that religion is the art of commerce, of transactionalism between you, between gods and men. Okay? Now, someone might say, well, first of all, notice that it is possible to do religion even with all your heart and still be walking in darkness. Jesus takes it further and says, you're actually following Satan. Doing religion is following Satan. That's why it's equated with darkness. That your father is actually the devil if you're trying to do religion. But someone might push back and someone might say, and maybe some of us are questioning, but how can that be? I mean, is not religion good? Is it not good and healthy to be moral, to obey God's commands, to practice spiritual traditions? Does that not make society better? Was not America, in part, founded on Christian religious principles? Is not Idaho full of good, moral, religious people, and does that not make it a great place to live? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So how is religion darkness? Okay. Religion exploits a deep longing of your heart, which is to be loved and accepted. So as I mentioned, that it's a system of transactions between you and God. What it does is it takes what you naturally desire for love and acceptance and causes you to feel that, to believe that you need to work in order to get that love and acceptance. Our hearts ever since sin came into the world, default to legalism, default to 
transaction default to religion. Since we are born into a sinful, broken reality, our hearts naturally default to these transactions. We believe inherently that we need to work for and earn what we need from God and each other. You see, that's the great irony that's going on here. We need love and acceptance from God, which is natural and good, which God wants to give us unconditionally through himself, through Jesus, and yet we default and revert to a system of transactions with God that we believe we need to take on in order to receive that love. If I do this for you, God, then you do this for me. And that is just core and deep in our hearts often. And that's not a relationship. That's a contract. And our sin will have it no other way. Since Eden, we have tried to be our own gods and our own saviors. You see how that happens? Religion exploits a deep longing in your heart for love and acceptance from God. Secondly, the other problem with religion is that it provides the opportunity for you to achieve that standard, to achieve that spiritual level, that moral standard, or that enlightenment on your own, or at least believe that you've reached it. Remember what happens when you believe you have arrived somewhere? When you've come, when you've, you've done the hard work to get where you are? You, you, you don't need to hear any more truth. You have summited the spiritual mountain. You've reached the top. You've plateaued. You have no other challenge to overcome. And that's darkness. You reject and dismiss the truth of Jesus because you, have, because you believe you already see the truth. You already see the light. You're at the top. There's only one way to look down and look, and that's down. And Jesus might respond, my friend, you may think you have reached the top, but you do not know the height from which you have fallen. If you humbly trust me and walk in a faith relationship, you will experience the love and acceptance that you desire from me and maybe even from others. You see how religion does that? Religion can be a good thing, but in the gospel, in the gospel here, uh, it's, not, it's not what God has designed and desired. He desires a faith relationship. Humbly accept the truth. Humbly submit to it. Trust and let obedience flow out of that. Now, how do, how do I know if I'm walking in a relationship by faith or if I'm doing religion? How do I see that? How do I know that? There's two ways. First, become more aware of your emotions and thoughts during and especially after sin. Failing to achieve a standard in your life, any standard, but especially a spiritual standard. Do you feel depressed? Do you feel incomplete? Do you feel unaccepted? Do you feel angry at yourself or angry at life? Do you feel self-deprecation? Do you loathe yourself? If you answer yes to any of those questions, there's a good chance that you're leaning towards religion or doing it. So that's the first way how you know. Become more aware, become more honest about what's going on in your heart. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? And how self-focused those emotions and thoughts are. Secondly, are you taking on a project of self-atonement? What do I mean by that? 
when you sin, any sin, but especially the socially acceptable sins or the more shameful sins, do you try to atone or make up for those on your own? What does that look like? Do you minimize your sin saying to yourself, that's eh, not that bad of a sin. I mean, at least I didn't murder. See how you're comparing and contrasting there? Do you compare your sin with others? Do you admit, well, I sinned, but, you know, at least it's not an addiction. Just a one-time thing. Or every so often. <laughs> or maybe it's an addiction, but you compare it with other addictions. Because you believe that your addiction doesn't have as bad of consequences as other addictions might. That's atonement. You're trying to make up for it. You're trying to cover over it. You're trying to, like, sweep it away. It's atonement. You're trying to do it on your own. Maybe you try to reason it away. Maybe it was a horrible sin, but, it, it was a, but you believe that it was a unique circumstance. You just tell yourself, I was having an off day. Wasn't really myself. Shouldn't happen again. Right? Maybe you make self-promises that you'll be better next time. How many of us have done that? Maybe for some of us, self-atonement looks like focusing on doing good things for people for the next few days. It's sort of like even the balance, right? You sin, and you feel horrible about yourself, so you do good things to kind of equalize it, right? And make yourself feel a little bit more balanced, a little more better. Doing good things, trying to be righteous. Maybe you shame yourself, and maybe there's a lot of negative self-talk, and you, feel, if you, and you believe that if you feel bad enough about yourself, and you tell yourself that you're no good, that you, knew, that you never do anything right, and you hope that God's up in heaven just agreeing with you, saying, yeah, you don't. You don't do anything right. My friends, it's all atonement that you are trying to do on your own. All of it. Jesus teaches relationship by faith, not religion. Religion will lead you to try to atone for your sin on your own. The gospel, though, says that Jesus advocates for you and he atones for you. In one of the letters that John writes later on in the New Testament, he says in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, sometimes I wish it, he would have said, but when anyone does sin. <laughs> but I think he means that as well. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus says that we, John says that we have an advocate, in Jesus, it means that Jesus defends you. It means he supports you before a righteous and holy God. Not because you're righteous, not because he's saying, look, this guy's a good guy. This gal, she's a great gal. It's not any of that. He's saying, because I'm righteous enough for them. I am righteous enough for you. That's what Jesus is saying. He's your advocate before a holy God, before the I am. 
He supports you. He defends you based on his perfect righteous obedience. What we could never do. Secondly, he says, John says that he is our atonement. When Jesus dies for you, he's dying for all of your sin in the past since the day you were born. He's dying for the sin that you may commit today or this week. He's dying for all of the sin in the future. His atonement is so complete and so final that it covers everything. Can you imagine if his atonement, what he did on the cross, only covered like maybe those egregious sins you committed a few years ago? Like that would be weak. That's a weak atonement. And Jesus says, nope, it's for everything. Why do you continue to go back and like try to atone for this on your own when I've covered it? <laughs> when I've done it? When it is finished, like he said on the cross? Why? Why do you revert back to religion? Why do you try to make up for it on your own and try to do the work to get to the Father? You do it through me because I've already done the work. So your work now is to believe. Your, your work now is to trust. Your work now is to see that and humbly accept it and humbly submit to it. My friends, I want Jesus. I want his greatness. I want the I am. I want the eternal life that he gives me now. I want what he teaches, which is faith. I don't want religion. I want that to permeate my heart. I'm going to pray, and we're going to go into a time of communion. <clears throat> I'd like to have the worship band come up. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you, I pray, for all of us here that we would want this. Please, Father, if you are doing a work in any of our hearts this morning, that, you, that it would be complete, that we would submit. Holy Spirit, we, we need your conviction on your heart. Even now, I feel like my heart's convicted. I want you, Jesus. We want you. I pray that we would want you more, your greatness, change our hearts, that only you can do. Praise you. We praise you, Father. This is good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Coming into you, permeating you, changing you, and you're saying, I believe that and I desire to have that happen. So the band is going to sing while the, the um, plates are being passed, and then I'll come back up and invite us to partake. Okay? Let's continue to worship. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.